Some of y'all may need to join Pete's uh, Faith and Fitness, Faith-Filled Fitness program. Uh, that might be helpful. All right, do we have our, do we have books? We got books. Dallas folks, can you raise your hand so Evan can find you with a book? Thank you for playing today. And all the way back over here, about the second row in the back there is our Guatemalan Connection. And we are so delighted. You know, actually, thank you guys, truly. You know, when you travel, sometimes people travel. They're just looking to get away from their routines. And, and they travel. They, they don't go to church. They just travel. But, you know, thank you guys that you would make that a priority on your trip to come and, and be with us today and worship God. <laughs> well, this morning we are uh, moving into a study of First Peter, as I mentioned earlier. And I thought this would be a good time for us to, to introduce not only First Peter, but why we study the Bible the way we do. So I'm going to take a few moments to do that. And the title of the message this morning is, is Introducing First Peter and the Apostle Peter. So I'm going to try and do both of those things this morning. But when we study through the Bible, the pattern that we seek to aim at is, is what is called expository preaching. And that's a, a big fancy word, but, you know, what exactly does it mean? Uh, and I'll try to explain a little bit of that this morning. But why study First Peter? Right, for us to go through in detail and look at this letter, uh, it, will, it will take us a good portion of next year to do that. Why go through a detailed study of First Peter, which falls under a bigger question, why study the Bible? Why commit so much time and effort and energy to study a book that was written so long ago? Why, why make that the object of so much time and attention? Well, what we believe the Bible teaches about itself would be the driving force behind that. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, 17 says, all scripture Scripture, so we're dealing with something unique here in this book. All Scripture is inspired by God. God is uniquely in the Bible in a way that, that he's not present in other places. So he's present here in this word. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate Equipped for every good work. Now, the reality is for every one of us in this room, we're all living life looking for some insight on how to do this thing. You know, we're subject to infomercials and somebody else's example and what somebody else did in their life and where they went to school and how they were raised. We're looking for ideas to make this life work. And along the way, we're letting those ideas do these things to us. We're letting them teach us. We're, we're letting them reprove and correct us, right? If we, if we start getting off course from wherever our idea was supposed to take us, that idea pulls us back in line. It says, don't do it that way. That's not the way to go about living your life. So we adjust course, training, right, ideas and pursuits that prepare us for the years that we're going to live in front of us, whether we're training our children or we're going through some formal education. We're looking for something to teach us, to reprove and correct us, and to train us so that we can live this life. Right? Well, our conviction is we can't find a better source than this to do those things. 
and what God has done in this word is preserve his word for us for this purpose. All scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for this task of finding this kind of input into our lives. So why study the Bible? Well, because we're going to study something and nothing comes close to the Bible in its wisdom and in its source. Where this comes from. All right, so I'm not going to unpack all that, but, but um, we study the Bible for that reason. Why expository study of a book? Now, what I mean by that is expository study doesn't have to be done by starting in the first verse of 1 Peter and going verse by verse by verse all the way through to the end. Uh, you could jump into the second chapter of 1 Peter and do an expository study. Expository has to do with being faithful to the original text and teaching from it the insights that it is offering rather than seeking to impose on the Bible an idea and trying to get the Bible to kind of come alongside my idea. Right? So, but there's an aspect here that what we do uh, as a portion of what we teach from the pulpit is to start in the beginning of a book and go all the way through the book so that when you're done, you've studied that entire book. We did the Gospel of John over the last couple of years and finished that in the summer uh, as an expository study of John. Now, why study the Bible that way? Why go through in a preaching venue from the pulpit and study the Bible that way? Well, here would be a couple of thoughts. I think uh, I've listed some of these in your outline. The Bible speaks of something it calls setting the whole counsel of God before us. The Apostle Peter was visiting a group of leaders, a group of uh, elders in the church in Ephesus, and when he was with them, he explained to them his pattern of ministry and was commending to them their role in the church. And one of the things he highlighted was that he did not, he did not shrink back, he said, from declaring to you the full counsel of God. And he was telling them, now protect the church, you, you protect the church by declaring to them the full counsel of God. But when we study through books of the Bible, we get to see the full counsel of God unfold. Not selective pieces of it, but the full counsel of God unfolding. And, you know, it's very important to kind of get the big picture of all that God is saying in this whole counsel of God. When, when, I, when I read Scripture... There's a primary focus in Scripture that's always there. On every page, there's a primary focus. And you can call it different things. You know, we call it the gospel. This is, this is the unfolding of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, it, is, it is a revelation of God's redemptive plan. Right? God is stepping into problematic humanity, and he's bringing a solution. Well, solution means there is a problem and there's a destination, and this whole Bible is about that. And if you don't get that, then you can't really understand some of the details of the Bible. If I just jump into a passage and I'm not used to the whole counsel of God, I can really misuse that passage. I had an interesting conversation the other day. I was visiting with my oncologist. I had an appointment for my regular checkup, which thank you guys for your prayers. All my tests came back clean. I'm still cancer-free, um, and, and she and I were talking, and, and she raised this question to me. She says, you know, it's just hard to understand the Bible. You know, you come, to, you come to stories, and she had one, and I forgot what one of them was, but the second one she referenced was Abraham. 
She says, why, you know, why is this guy Abraham having to take his son and kill his own son? I mean, it's like some of these stories just, they just don't make sense. So I, I said, well, you know, one of the things that's, that's often misunderstood about coming to the Bible is, is to treat the Bible like it's individual disconnected episodes. Like Abraham's just a story from which we read Abraham's story and we get some moral dynamic from it. And then there's another story about Moses or some other guy. And we just kind of draw these morals of the stories from it. So no, no, the Bible, and if you don't get this, you're not going to get Abraham's story. The Bible is one unfolding story. The Bible is about one thing. And so from cover to cover, we're being brought into different perspectives on this one Thing And so we begin to talk a little bit about Abraham and his uniqueness. And, you know, when you look at Abraham, you know, take, just take that one story. If you don't understand the big picture, you come to and you hear about a story of a man who takes his only son, brings him up onto a hill, and is going to kill him. Pulls the knife out and is about to plunge it into his son's chest, and God stops him. I mean, you've got to be thinking, whoa, what is this all about? But what if you bring to that story, you know, the whole story there, what if you bring to it that this Bible is featuring a sovereign God who has the rights over everything, and he is after restoring fallen, idolatrous humans to a passionate worship of himself. Now, that's what God's seeking to do in every person's life. Now, that's what God's after. And he reaches into Abraham's life and he touches something that's of most value to him. And he requires it of him as a sacrifice. Okay, now that, that makes a little bit more sense. And then God stops and doesn't have him actually take the life of his own son. And then, strange story, Mo, uh, Abraham finds this ram caught in a thicket. This, where did this ram come from? And he sacrifices that ram. Now, if you don't understand that God is trying to teach something about the one thing the Bible's about in that moment, that God is trying to take Abraham's story and look forward to the day when God would provide the lamb so that the guilty ones didn't have to die. They would get to go from out from underneath the knife and the lamb would take the knife instead. When Abraham sacrifices that ram, you get an insight into what this whole Bible is about. Now, if you don't get that, that see, that's the whole counsel of God. You get that from all of the scripture. If you come to the Bible and you just decide, I just want to grab Abraham out of nowhere and tell a story about Abraham, then you're going to end up with some kind of moral story that, you know, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his all, and you need to be willing to sacrifice your all as well. Really? That's what that story is about? No, that's not what that story is about. But you don't get it unless you get the whole counsel of God. So, you know, when we preach through the Bible, we're after seeing the whole counsel of God. Uh, let me just highlight two possible ways for us to approach preaching on a Sunday morning. There would be preaching, I think I put this in your outline, that would be devotionally driven, need-driven, maybe cultural trend-driven preaching. Now, what that preaching does is this. Guy goes to prepare a sermon. His first foot he puts into the audience, and he says, what's going on in your life? What's going on in your world? 
How are you doing well? How are you not doing well? What are the trends that are going on? What's capturing your attention? What's relevant to you? Okay, I think I've got it. Now let me reach into the Bible and see if I can grab something from the Bible and bring it into the relevance of your world. All right, that would be one way of preaching on a Sunday morning. What expository preaching does is it puts its first foot into the Bible. It says, what is the Bible saying? What is the Bible emphasizing? What is the Bible big on? What is it ambitious about? What are its values? What matters the most in Scripture? Then its second foot goes into the audience and says, this is how this is relevant to your life. Now, do you see a difference? See, if, if I start with the audience of man today and say, hey, what, what kind of thing would you like to hear? What, you know, what's in you right now? I'm, I might construct a message this morning that says, okay, guys, this morning's message is, is how to keep the Grinch from stealing your Christmas. All right? And then I'm going to traffic around in all the busyness of your life and everything you've got to do and all the pressures that are upon you during the holiday season. And I'm going to grab some proverb and some story from the Bible, and we're going to try and put a Band-Aid on not being jerks for the next month. Okay, you know, that might be helpful at some level, and I wouldn't say that's, that's wrong to do that. Um, but there's more important things in the Bible. So the Bible is saying something about other topics that you and I may never come up with. By reaching to the audience, I may never come up with a topic on repentance. I may never find the topic salvation. I may never find passionate worship as a topic. So when I reach into the Bible, I find out that the Bible tells us what's important. And sometimes we're living lives that are chronically misdiagnosing life. We're forever trying to figure out how to feel better about ourselves. And then we grab some modern idea and we write books, you know, be a better you. And, you know, as if that's really your issue. You know, the Bible educates you about the full counsel of God at, at some point. You're going to stand before the Lord of glory. This brief chapter that we've called Life on Earth will close and be over, and we will step off into eternity. And being a better you, whatever that meant, and it tends to mean whatever you want it to mean, may not have been the most important thing you needed to get from the Bible. It may have been that there was some stuff in First Peter that you may not have spent any time with because it just didn't seem to dazzle where you were at in that moment. But that's where the Bible said the action is. So one of the reasons why we teach through books of the Bible is to set before us the full counsel of God, that we can hear what the Bible's insights are about life and bring our lives to the Bible rather than living our lives full-blown and trying to bring pieces of the Bible to us. And the other thing that this does, and this is even true for folks who, who like to, to teach from the Bible, even teach faithfully from the Bible, is, you know, when you preach through a book, you kind of don't get to pick your favorite subjects. Right, sometimes, and you, you'll know this if you've been in churches and all of us have this tendency, there's certain things in the Bible, it's true of me and Peter and Matt, Jeff, all of us, we own certain revelation more than we own others. And so the tendency sort of, you know, it's kind of like if you're a basketball player, you go to the right, if you're right-handed, better than you go to the left. So given a choice, I'm going to the right, I'm going to the right, I'm going to the right, right? Given a choice in subjects and topics, I'm going to preach on this and this and this a lot and maybe not get to that and that and that. But yet the Word of God includes that and that and that. And I don't want to be 
keeping you from that just because it may not be something that I'm in touch with real well. Well, when you teach through a book, the book takes you into the topics. So you have to go where the book goes, and you have to address issues that the Bible addresses. So these would be some reasons why we teach through Scripture the way that we do. We preach through books and letters in the Bible. Um, so that's free. First Peter. First Peter. And I mentioned earlier, I won't, I won't do this again. I'll develop it a little bit further next week, what First Peter as a book is primarily taking its aim at. But let's read first two verses, the introduction to the letter here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, I want to I look at two aspects, and we'll take more than one week to do this. The, the author, obviously scripture is inspired by God, so we know behind this is the divine revelation of God, but there's a human author involved, and there's a human audience involved, and I want us to look at those things as we begin the letter. But I just want to look today at the, at the author, but let me, let me draw out some thoughts about scripture for a moment. We're dealing with scripture here. So I'll put in your outline there, Scripture is divine inspiration plus human communication. Divine inspiration. God is going to bring revelation to humanity, and it's going to take the form of words communicated by an author. He's going to put things into words that you and I can read and come in contact with. Now, let me illustrate something that's unique about Scripture. How many of you guys are coffee drinkers? God bless you all. How many of you, how many of you guys brew your own coffee? How many of you need your wife to do that instead of you? It's humbling, but it's true. Uh, I, still, I still have to call my wife. Honey, how, how many tablespoons you put in? Um, the brewing process of coffee, is, it's kind of like, like the inspiration of Scripture here. All right? You start with a process. There's going to be a process through which ground-up coffee and water is going to get introduced to each other. And on the other end of that, there's going to be something called coffee. There's, there's variety in the coffee, but after you've gone through the process, you always end up with coffee. Uh, you never end up with Sprite, beer, uh, V8 juice, never get any of that on the other end of this process. This process always produces coffee. However, there is, you know, there's good coffee and there's bad coffee, right? There's, there's different flavors in the coffee. You, you, if you roast the bean a certain way, you will get a different flavor. So you can get dark espresso roast and you'll get one kind of coffee. Or you can get morning blend and you get a different kind of lighter, weaker, effeminate coffee. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> and then there's, then there's the beans, right? You got beans that come from Brazil and Colombia compared to beans that come from Italy or Sumatra. And those different beans have inherent in them some, some different dynamic that are going to influence the flavor of that coffee. Now, listen, at the end of the day, you got coffee on your hands. 
but there's some distinctions in the coffee. You can take a sip of this coffee and that coffee, and you're still drinking coffee, but there's some distinction in them, right? Well, when you come to Scripture, you find a similar thing. You find that, that God is superintending this entire process of inspiring his word. At the end of the day, we're going to end up with Scripture, but depending on how God might be roasting, if you will, the individual writer, that's going to have a little flavor to the Scripture. And then there's the geography of where was this inspired toward? What was the location? What was going on there when this word was being written and inspired by God? So you have divine revelation going through an individual to an audience. And from book to book, those things can vary. So what you end up with is a different flavor of coffee. Amos tastes a little bit different than Luke, but they're both scripture. Tastes a little bit different than Galatians or 1 Peter, but they're all Scripture. But when we come to the Scripture, if we can appreciate these dynamics, we might find that part of the inspiration of God was who he chose to use to write it and those who he wrote it to give us insight into what God was trying to reveal to us. So 1 Peter, your outline there, it says 1 Peter equals divine revelation plus a chosen communicator plus a chosen audience. All right, this week we're going to look at God's chosen communicator first. The author, the Bible comes right out and says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Peter is the author of 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Now, let's, let's spend a few moments with Peter because I think it's significant that God chose to communicate certain things through a certain man and then reveal that to us. But Peter... Peter comes with a little bit of publicity. Unlike many other writers, Peter kind of has his own baggage, if you will. Not that he created it, although he did create some. But history has created some issues for Peter. So when we come to learning from this author, it might be helpful for us to separate a little bit the man from the myth, if you will. Uh, most of us are familiar with the idea that, that when you get to heaven, who's the first guy you're going to meet? Peter. Right? I mean, he's standing at the gates. Right? Every joke about going to heaven has Peter in it. He's the keeper of the gates. He's at the pearly gates. He's, uh, he's the guy who lets you in. You know, you get to the pearly gates and, you, and Peter's there and, and he lets you in or he doesn't let you in. You know, Coldplay's got a song for some reason I can't explain. I know St. Peter will call my name. Um, where, where do we get these ideas from? Is Peter really a heavenly doorman? I mean, is he really in heaven standing at the door? Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're going, yeah, duh, yeah. Okay, but my question is, where do we get the idea? Right, can you open the Bible up and find the idea that the apostle Peter is greeting people at the front door on their way into heaven? Well, somewhere down the road, that idea got a little bit of a historic life of its own, and then people reached back into the person of Peter and imposed it on him because we don't get it from the Bible. That's the main thing I want to make sure we understand. Don't get that idea from the Bible. Or what about Peter as the first pope? Where do we get that idea from? Do we find the Bible teaching us that Peter is the first pope? 
Now, one of the reasons I thought it was important to start here, which if I lived in Iowa, I would not have started this book here. But one of the reasons I'm starting here on purpose is because I'm in New Orleans, and I grew up in New Orleans, and I know what kind of thoughts I'm bringing to anything about the Apostle Peter. And I'm guessing you're kind of like me. But before I kind of carefully step into this pile, right, you do realize I'm about to step into a pile, right? <laughs> right first, I want to ask, ask your permission to do that. I want to be careful. Um, but I also want to ask you this morning, because First Peter is going to take us into some territory, whether you want to go there or not. The book's going to go there. You read the Bible. If you read it, the whole counsel of God, you're going to bump into ideas that grate you, rub you the wrong way, mess with your ideas. All right, my question to you. Do you have any off-limits topics that if I go in that direction, and you can hear me going there, if I go there, you're going to begin to sense defensiveness. I'm not, I'm not open. Where is this, where is this going? A uh, little bit of a hostility. You got any topics like that? You know, whatever they are. You know, whether it is comparative religion, whether we're talking about Catholicism, or whether we're talking about uh, a passage that might be about divorce, or a passage about homosexuality, or abortion. Do you have any topics that if you begin to go there, you know, your stomach knots up and you get this? Okay, where's this going? Kind of a feeling going on. All right. You shouldn't have that. A Christian shouldn't have that. Here's why. You and I come to God. We, we are we're incomplete. We lack insight. We live in a fallen world. There's lots of good and bad information all mixed together. And we're coming to God in pursuit of the truth. Now, if I'm sincere about that, and, and something that I own in my life isn't the truth, and you're bringing me the truth, probably my initial encounter with you is going to be uncomfortable, and I'm not going to like it, because you're, you're unsettling something that I have invested my belief in, and you're messing with it. But if I just back away from that uncomfortableness for a moment, and I ask myself the question, Keith, what do you want? You want that, or you want the truth? Now, if you're a Christian... You want the truth more than you want anything else, more than you want your tradition, more than you want your position, more than you want what's comfortable. You want the truth. Listen, preaching the Bible needs to bring the truth to your life. Listen, also, I'm telling you up front, I want, I want to be caring. I want to be sensitive. I'm not always sensitive. I want to try and be sensitive when I get into some areas like this. But I need to warn you right up front, my ambition as a preacher is not to make you comfortable. It's not a goal of mine on any given Sunday. <laughs> I like the quote. I can't remember where it came from. Preaching should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. So if you, if you have some territory that in your life might need to bump into the Bible, don't be afraid of that. We're after the truth. 
The truth sets us free. The truth sets God before us accurately. We've got some ideas that need to be displaced by the truth. Ah, bring it on. Listen, if you bring to me some concept that you think, hey, you know, I think this is true, Keith, and I'm kind of at odds with that. Listen, I'm not recoiling. I'm, I'm wanting to double check. I'm wanting to find out, okay, well, why is that? Why do you feel that way? What's the insight there? You know, does that bear witness with the scriptures? Is that, you know, and, and maybe you're going to show me something that causes me to go, wow, all these years, I, I've really been seeing that wrong. But I'm after the truth because I know what the truth will do in my life. I know how it glorifies God. So, so give me some permission to go here for a moment. It's very important. I think very important for us, having grown up, I grew up, I grew up Roman Catholic from New Orleans. Uh, it, it's, it can be a challenge to speak into those arenas of life because if you're like me, you got a lot of family dynamic built into your background. A lot of loyalties. I mean, I have, I have grandparents and great aunts who were influential in my life and uh, they held positions and they believed certain things and our family believed certain things and, and maybe for the mo- long part in our lives didn't ask any questions about why we believed we just did. And if somebody questioned that, it was very awkward, and you just kind of didn't do that. It was accepted. It was like you were betraying your family if you did something outside of that category or believed something different. So I know that's, that's a challenge. But I also know that God has preserved the truth for us to be pursued. To make an adjustment, like to make Peter, for instance, a pope, um, it has a significant impact on the Bible. It has a significant amount. It's not a small thing. Right, you, ever, you ever play one of those games where, you know, you got all these scrambled up numbers, and you're trying to get them there in a box, and you slide them around. There's like one open space, and you're trying to get one, two, three, four, five, and then things got like ten up here and seven, and you got to move them all around. You ever you decide that, okay, I'm so close, but this one won't go over to that one. I'm making this move. And you make the move, and you got to like undo the whole puzzle. Well, sometimes when you move theology around, you have to move a bunch of things to make it now all work together, and you damage a bunch of stuff when you do it. So it might seem insignificant. Was Peter or not? Was he a pope? Uh, But it may move stuff around in such a way that it, it affects other stuff. Let me give you some examples. Problem with altering who he is. One, I would examine first our motive in doing that. If the Bible doesn't make this emphasis, why are we trying to create it? If the Bible doesn't clearly teach that Peter was the head of the universal church and functioned in the way in which a definition for the Pope that we understand today functions, if the Bible doesn't make that clear, why are we trying to force that on Peter? There are many things the Bible makes absolutely clear. Is it that God couldn't have made that more clear? Or is it that as time unfolded, ideas were created and then someone reached back in history and imposed ideas that are post-Bible upon a biblical figure? That's very possible. And I, I would venture to say the same thing is true about Mary, that there are ideas about Mary that are not in the Bible, but that through the years began to be created, and then they were introduced and imposed upon the figure of Mary in the Bible, a true figure. Peter is an influential, powerful man in Scripture. But is he, is he a pope? Does he have what we understand today, uh, the pope to have? Well, 
question, will this alteration harm other biblical dynamics? Well, I can think of a couple thoughts. One, has Peter's humanness been displaced by his superior appointment? When we look a little bit today and you study this man, Peter's a, Peter's a dude. He's an ordinary man. He's your neighbor down the street. You know, when we say, well, Peter was the first pope, I mean, you all know this. Immediately pull him out of the stratosphere of everybody else and put him by himself. He's the pope. There's no one like him. He's no longer ordinary. We overlook the, the fact that this, this pope, unlike today, was a married man. Some people don't even know that. Well, that's in the Bible. He was married. An ordinary life. Can you imagine? If he was married, it can almost be guaranteed he fought with his wife. <laughs> Ladies, is that true or not? <laughs> but he was the Pope. See, we can't, we can't conceive of Peter being a man. I mean, come on. Put Peter's personality into a marriage, right? I mean, you've read a little bit about Peter in the Bible? I mean, he's correcting Jesus for goodness sake. Can you imagine some of the things his wife said that he had to correct? <laughs> so he's, a, he's an ordinary guy. Peter's got issues. Issues so much that he's afraid of what people will say or do to him. He's going to end up denying Christ. And even after he meets Christ, even after all that gets resolved, he's going to get rebuked by the apostle Paul in Antioch because word's gotten out that Peter's got a fear of man issue. He's afraid of what the Jews think of him because he's hanging around those Gentile Christians. So he's pulled away from them. He's not around them anymore. Only when the guys from Jerusalem come down because he wants to look a certain way in front of those guys. Now, would the Pope do that? We can't, we can't imagine that. Peter is a man. He's an ordinary man. We need to keep him within reach. The Bible does. What impact does this alteration have on the, on the teachings, on the plurality of leaders, and on mutual submission? See, when you come to the Bible, and I want to take a moment to do this. You come to the Bible, you find Peter. Look in 1 Peter chapter 5. You find Peter highlighting something that actually becomes very important for how the church is going to function in ages to come. The church, the biblical presentation for leaders is of humble men in a plurality receiving a variety of input. It's, it's not this hierarchy where there's a man who's going to make a final decision and everybody else has to come underneath that one man's position. First Peter chapter 5, Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of a glory that is to be revealed. How did Peter see himself? As a fellow elder. He saw himself amongst a group of people who were leading and caring for God's people. He, he didn't pull rank on them. He didn't tell them what they have to do. He didn't proclaim some position of authority that was uniquely his. He saw himself amongst others. And that's true if you look in other settings where people is, where Peter's running with other leaders. Acts chapter 15. The first situation here of a, a council in Jerusalem that's being called. There are issues of doctrine, issues of practice in the church that are needing to be discussed. 
And so all the leaders are going to get together. A little bit of a summit meeting is happening here. And all the apostles are gathered, and they're going to receive input, and they're going to try and make a decision for the church to be able to move forward. Chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem, to the apostles and the elders about this question. You read the Bible and let it bring insights. Who did Paul and Barnabas go to? There's a problem in the church. They, They don't go to to Peter by himself, they go to a plurality of leaders. They go to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. Look down in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter's referring to when God revealed to him to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. It was a radical thought. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Do you get a feel for this meeting? This is a plurality of elders and apostles coming together to think through what God's direction would be for the church. And a variety of individuals are giving input. Peter is one of them. So is Paul and Barnabas. After they had finished speaking, James replied. Now, here we are at the end of the meeting. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And he quotes the prophets there in verse 19. Therefore, James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, et cetera, et cetera. James gives a position that becomes the decision that they make. And then it says in verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men and to send them with this news. All right, now, let's not reach into history and impose anything on the text. Let's just read the text for a moment. You tell me what's going on and how the church was led in the beginning. Do you see any one man in charge? Now, if you did see one man in charge, who would you say it was? You'd say James, wouldn't you? Because everybody gets a chance to speak, and at the end of the meeting, James gives the leadership. So if you wanted to make a case for somebody running things, you wouldn't make Peter the guy running it. You'd more than likely make James the guy running it. That doesn't work either. There's a plurality of leaders who came together to make a decision. That works. It bears witness with the rest of the Bible. Look look in Galatians real quickly. Galatians chapter 1. Apostle Paul is relating how he related to these leaders in Jerusalem. 
Look in verse 18. After three years, Paul says, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, which is uh, Paul's, uh, Peter's Aramaic name, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Right, you have an issue right there. Right? Right. I'm walking carefully. I really am. I really am. I'm trying to do this carefully, but I want you to see these things. James was who? He was the Lord's brother. But somewhere in history, not in the Bible, somewhere in history, the idea was created, and you actually can find dates for this, that Mary was the ever-virgin. So therefore, she had no other children. So that idea gets created. We reach back to a biblical character named Mary, and we put that idea on her. But when we read the Bible, we find out this guy, James, the guy who was running the council, is Jesus' brother, Mary's son. And so if we let the Bible speak to us, you know, it kind of gives us what it wants us to know in some of these categories. So he, he went he saw Cephas, he saw James. What I'm writing to you, uh, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, Look down in verse, chapter 2, verse 7. Then he recounts when he came to Jerusalem. Look in verse 6. And from those who seemed to be influential, <clears throat> what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. You just don't speak about certain people that way. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, Okay, now, you, you just cut the church in half. And you said Paul has been appointed by God to lead the charge into the, the world of Judaism. And Peter has been appointed to lead the charge into the, into the world of the Gentiles. Would you conclude that Peter was the head of the entire church from that? Verse 8. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. You get a chance to see. This is how the church functioned. So if I let the Bible tell me I don't walk away with Peter playing a more, he played a significant role. He's mentioned amongst these men's names. You, you would put him right up there with James and John and influential and Paul in the beginning of the church, but you wouldn't isolate him and remove him from the context of fellow leaders. And to do that, not only are you going to change historically who Peter is, but you're going to change present day how the church is to be led. And when you do that, you just move things around and you scramble the doctrines all over the place when you did that one. Because the church is supposed to have this plurality dynamic functioning in it that leaders are walking together, making decisions and leading the church. That's what we see in the New Testament. It's what we're supposed to see today. It's not a hierarchy system. And so that's, that's important. Not only for them, it's important for us today. Does this alteration diminish the sacred and unique place of the scriptures? Well, if we look historically, it has. 
It is it has put Peter in a position of authority and ability to speak in such a way that what he says is held to be equal with the scriptures. In the moment we make anything equal with the scripture, we just have diminished the scriptures from what the Bible says. The Bible has placed scripture uniquely. There is no human voice that rivals the scriptures. Remember, the scripture is the unique inspiration of God. And decisions in the world of the church is not scripture. So there is a differentiation there. But if we make Peter something that he doesn't seem to be in scripture, then we're going to deputize him in a way that's going to cause us to relocate the doctrine of scripture and put another voice right there next to it. All right, those are just some quick thoughts as to how we think through who this man Peter is and and really how we come to the Bible and find these things out. I I know I'm probably unearthing some some things for some folks that that maybe haven't been uh, wrestled with. I encourage you, wrestle with these things. They're in the Bible. You can, you can search them out here. You can search out traditions in the church just to see where those ideas came from. It's very important what you believe about things like this. Let me see if I can move quickly here, though, through the biblical person of Peter. Who, who is this guy who's going to write 1 Peter for us? Well, first, Peter, he's a religious outsider, so he's about to become famous for something that he doesn't have any kind of background for. He's a, he's a fisherman. He's a tradesman. Uh, you know, fill in the picture of what that looks like. I don't know if it looks like a guy on the Deadliest Catch TV show. You know, uh, what did he look like, you know, before he met Christ? He's standing over there smoking while he's taking a break, you know, putting his raincoat on. I don't know. He's a fisherman, though, all right? This is who Peter is. This is his personality. This is what he's gone after in his life. He owns a business. It's a fishing business. But what about being a religious person? What about being a leading religious figure? It's going to set the stage for all the church in years and years to come. Is that Peter? Well, the Bible says this. You can look over in Acts chapter 4 for a moment. The Bible says that Peter was recognized as an uneducated and untrained man. It does not mean Peter was, was uh, stupid, uh, ignorant individual. It doesn't mean that. It means within the context that that statement is spoken that this man doesn't have the qualifications to play in this world. He doesn't have a seminary background. He hasn't been trained in one of the fine rabbinical schools of the day. He's an outsider. He can't possibly know much about theology and God and the practice of walking with God. But yet we know that's not the case, right? Acts chapter 4, verse 5, after Peter has preached in Jerusalem and many have been converted, thousands have come to Christ as a result of God using this man amazingly, then miracles are being performed And this miracle generates another opportunity for him to preach. That preaching lands him in jail, and now he's having to give an answer for what's going on through his life. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power and by what name did you do this? Then Peter, and if I could say the most significant thing about the Apostle Peter, I'm about to say it, filled with the Holy Spirit. 
You want to unlock the key to everything about this man. That little phrase unlocks the key as to why you and I are still talking about the Apostle Peter today. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. Remember, Peter's name means what? Rock. Now, remember, Greek is not like English. It has words that we don't translate real well. His name actually means chip off the block. It means little piece of rock. So when he stands and says, this Jesus whom you rejected by the builders which has become the cornerstone, he's the rock. And all throughout the Bible, there's only one rock in the Bible. There was a rock that was being hit in the Old Testament. There is none like our God. He is our rock throughout the Old Testament. When we get to Peter, it's not as though Peter's getting some huge promotion when Jesus says, you're Simon, and from now on, you're going to be the rock. Because it doesn't make any sense with the rest of the Bible. God is not looking for us to transfer our thoughts from Jesus being the rock to Peter being the rock. It doesn't make any sense with the whole counsel of God. The Bible has spent all of its work getting us to see Jesus Christ as the pinnacle. And then in one moment, in one statement that's kind of obscure, Jesus has given all that away to a guy named Peter. Boy, that's a big jump. I don't want to tamper with the rock in the Bible carelessly. I don't want to transfer that title of the rock upon which the church is going to be built becomes this man rather than that man. Do you remember what, what generated that conversation between Peter and Jesus? Jesus asking, who do men say that I am? Some say you're this, some say you're that. Peter gets a revelation in that moment that Jesus says, you know what? Nobody taught you that, dude. You got that straight from my father. Well, what was his revelation? That you, Jesus Christ, man from Nazareth, you are the Messiah. You are the son of God. Then Jesus unpacks the idea that upon this rock I will build my church. Does it make any sense that everything in the Bible is leading up to the person of Christ being the foundation for our lives and all this cornerstone and he's the rock and he's the the thing upon which everything sets and the reason why the gates of hell will not prevail against the church is because Christ is the rock. If Peter's the rock, if his wife were here with us, would she be saying that's a good idea? I mean, come on, would Paul be saying, wait, wait, the dude that's afraid of the people from Jerusalem, he's the rock? Whoa, I'm concerned. <laughs> okay, when you make Peter not a real ordinary man, see, this is what you end up doing to him. He's a dude full of the Holy Spirit who did amazing things in the power of God and gave us Scripture to read. 
goes on there in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. What was it that made Peter blow people's minds? It's that he was doing stuff that that dude don't look like he could do that. So let's try and figure this out. Why, why is this guy capable of that? When, you know, when you watch the before and after shot, you watch Peter before Pentecost. And then you watch him afterwards. Something happened to this guy. The same guy that wouldn't stand up in front of the little girl who's saying, aren't you with him? I think I saw you with him once. No! Get the, I never knew the guy. In a few days, he's going to stand in front of a crowd of thousands and not just say, do I know him? I'm going to tell him you killed him. <laughs> and he's the Lord of glory. And what a blunder you got on your hands. Do you think that might have been offensive? <laughs> but all of a sudden, there's a boldness in this man that he didn't have just days earlier. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is a different man. Right, when we get to Peter's life, right, Peter is a man in need of transformation. If you knew this man, you would know Peter needs help. John MacArthur says, Peter was eager, aggressive, bold, and outspoken with a habit of revving his mouth while his brain was in neutral. <laughs> I've often referred to him as the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth. <laughs> right? I mean, if you read through the Gospels, Peter is out there. He's the first one to speak almost all the time. But listen, well, that's because, you know, he's this big leader. Uh, yeah, but he's the first one to say the wrong thing most of the time, too. <laughs> right? I mean, here, here these events are taking place, and he's constantly jumping into the middle of them and trying to alter the course of them. And quite often, he's on the wrong side of the argument. Right? You want to stand up to Jesus and tell him, no, no, you're not going to Jerusalem to be killed by those. No. Not going to happen. Not on my watch. And then you have Jesus not going, wow, thank you, Peter, <laughs> for your loyalty in taking that stand. No, he turns around and says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> it's like, this is Peter. He doesn't know what side he's on sometimes. This guy's in need of transformation. All right, and you're going you're gonna to see some insights from Peter as you read through, and I, you can go back and look, and I hope you will, read through First Peter. Read through the whole book in one setting, and then read through it again and again, then go back and read pieces of it. It's be a good way for us to study it together. But Peter's going to start off talking about the necessity of trials and being guarded by God through these trials so that your faith can be tested by God. Really? Peter, you're going to bring us that insight? Yeah. That's not a natural insight for him. That's a supernatural insight. Because you remember Jesus said, uh, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed that your faith would not fail. What do, you, what do you think he's talking about when he talks to us about you may go through some trials for a season that are going to affect your faith, but you're being guarded by God for a revelation yet to be revealed. This man knew this. Right? He had, he had been through the roasting 
Peter tastes a certain way when you read his letter because God had roasted him so that the flavor of his letter would have certain nuances to it. Second, uh, in the second chapter of Peter, you find Peter trying to encourage people to submit to this God who's got a plan. He's got it all under control. So you can submit to God while even bad things are going on to you. You can be submitted to God. Now remember, Peter stood in the garden, and he's going to quote Jesus, who didn't revile, didn't return evil. He submitted himself to God. He learned that from Jesus. And I think one of the greatest moments he learned it was right after Peter chopped off Malchus' ear. Right? Here comes the crowd to take Jesus to be crucified. And Peter, again, on the wrong side of the God equation, pulls the sword out. And, you know, he's a fisherman. He's not a swordsman. Had he been a swordsman, Jesus would have been putting Malchus' head back on. But instead, he, you know, it probably wasn't real good, flung the sword, took his ear off. Jesus picks the ear up, puts it back on, and continues course and submits himself to what's going on. And Peter watches that. In the midst of Jesus going to the cross and all the suffering that that would entail, he watched the Son of Man submit to God and his purpose for his life. And he writes about it for us. He's going to write about humility. Peter is going to write about humility. Right, you do remember Jesus explaining that they're going to strike the shepherd down and all of you are going to flee. What you talking about? <laughs> Peter pipes up, not me. Some of these dudes, oh, they'll duck and run, but not me. <laughs> I will be with you to the death. No, Peter, actually, you're worse than the rest of them. You're not only going to duck and run, you're going to deny you even know me. They might actually say they know me if somebody confronted them, but you're not even going to say that. See the arrogance in this guy? But he's a transformed man, the filling of the Holy Spirit and the power of the work of God in his life, and he's writing a letter to us. He's been roasted. That's why Peter tastes a certain way when you read this book. One last resume piece for Peter. Peter was one of the 12. One of the 12 is a unique category of men in Scripture. Unique, let me say this, unique not because they were gifted as apostles, because I believe that the gift of apostle extends outside of the 12. Paul would be the greatest argument for that, but several other men in the Scriptures would be arguments for that as well. Unique because they're identified as the 12, and they're always packaged together and looked at that way. And one day when you and I get to the heavenly Jerusalem, there's going to be these stones around the base of the city that has their names on it. So nobody else gets that. So there's a uniqueness to this 12. But, you know, learn something of the insights of Peter being pulled into this group of 12. He he seems like he'd be a challenge to play along with the rest of the children. John MacArthur says, The 12 were an amazingly varied group. Four fishermen, they were two sets of brothers. They came from the same community, and they had apparently all been friends for a long time. Peter is one of them. By contrast, Matthew was a tax collector and a loner. Simon was a zealot, a political activist. I don't know how you describe Simon. Simon was part, uh, he was part Glenn Beck, part terrorist. Uh, you know, he's, he was a zealot for the cause of Zion 
people needed to die. I mean, this is, this is what he was like. He believed passionately in what he believed. He was a different kind, and he was a loner. That Matthew, a former tax collector, right, betrayer of the nation of Israel, scumbag, and Simon, a former zealot, zealous for the cause of the nation of Israel, could be a part of the same company of 12 apostles is a testimony to the life-changing power and grace of Christ. And I can't wait to just bring some of this home to us a little bit, just in looking at these characters from the Bible. You, you, you look at Peter's background, where he comes from, what he naturally was like, the issues that are going to surface in his life. And my question for us, does your resume control your expectation of how God might use you for his glory? I mean, honestly, does an impulsive, religiously untrained fisherman sound like a future apostle to you? A guy with all of his issues to overcome. Okay, I mean, back in the neighborhood, they had to have been saying, what? what? Jesus chose who? What? His mother had to have been saying, scratching her head. I mean, Peter was a handful. I mean, maybe you got a resume kind of like that. You got issues, you got a reputation, you got stumbling blocks, people bump into you a certain way. And you can begin to believe that that's the controlling dynamic about who you're ever going to be in the kingdom of God. But can you take a lesson from what we see in this passage? This man is going to be used by God in amazing ways. He is one of the key players in the New Testament to launch the church and to give us holy scripture to benefit from years and years and years later. And he's gathered into a group of 12 folks, and I couldn't help but observe this. and think that we need to see it as well. Question, are you too natural-minded when it comes to your approach to addressing compatibility issues in your life? Peter was a challenge to stick in that group, but probably not as much of a challenge as some of the chemistry that existed between these other folks. There were some serious challenges in bringing together this kind of diversity. Listen, here we are. Right? They, are they have a holy calling on their life. They're the 12, and there are holy callings here today of God collecting people together. There are holy callings of husbands and wives. You feel incompatible? You feel like really different? That person doesn't understand. They come from a totally different background. They were raised this way and they've always been that way. And, and their personality naturally does this. And I don't even like to do that. I've never liked this and they like this. And, and you're examining all the ways that you're different. And you're wondering, how, how could your marriage possibly work? Are you being a little bit too natural-minded in that? Are you, are you pulling God out of the equation? Because in the natural sense, these 12 should have been a brief meeting. A fist fight should have broke out. Somebody should have stole something and then not be seen. <laughs> but for them to start the church, do you understand? The church, nothing bigger and more important has ever been launched. You know, well, this is an IBM. No, no, IBM will be forgotten about. You're on the verge of forgetting about IBM right now. 
the church. And these are the guys that Jesus picks to come together in unity and form the church. And you think you can't do that in your marriage? It's just two of you. It's not 12. I think so. It's just two, right? (laughs) Or your compatibility with people in the church. Man, what a screaming statement we make. This makes, doesn't this make a screaming statement? Because I, I saw a bunch of you just started to think through what these guys were like, and Jesus brought them all together. Your face is all registered. Wow, yeah, that's something. We can't even stay in the same church with one another sometimes. And we can sit on the other side of the building and maybe avoid somebody. But we have to leave the church. We're going to have to go somewhere else. You see, and you don't understand what's been done in that person and the events and or, you know, let me make it a little smaller. We're going to leave covenant groups. Go to another covenant group because, you know. Hey, are we, are we just getting way too natural-minded? Have we extracted from our lives this supernatural God who takes people like Peter and turns them into the apostle Peter and makes them influential players with power full of the Holy Spirit? And what might God do? Listen, don't be anybody running for the exit sign without consulting the power of God in your relationships. It testifies, says something about God. All right, let me close with this. Matt, you can come back up. All right, where do we go with this introduction this morning? Well, what we get introduced to, we look at Peter as the author in this letter. We get introduced to an ordinary man a man in need of transformation, a man not qualified for what God has for him to do. He's a fisherman who's about to write theology and preach messages and influence the way people think. Is he the right guy for this? Can he really pull this off? Well, he can, and he does. Now, how does that transfer to us? Well, you, you got some categories where you're doing that. You're asking, am, am I the right person for this? Can I really pull this off? This is really something. You know, given my background and my personality, God, have you made a really big mistake in putting me in this situation or with this person? Or maybe this morning God wants to communicate to you how he operates how he takes things that in the natural look one way and supernaturally he touches them and they become something that they would never have been. Peter would never have been this apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So some of us need to head in that direction. Some of us need to prepare to study this letter. All right, if you read 1 Peter, and I hope you'll do that, I'm serious. If you want to enjoy this study, in the next week, read through the entire book several times in one sitting. I think it's 105 verses, 135, I don't remember. Read through it, and then the next day, read through the whole thing again. And the next day, read through the whole thing again. And, and before you start going in and just reading through sections of it and finding sections of thought and studying what's in this section here, just get familiar with the book. And when you do, you're going to find, I think, you, you know, this is my opinion, so you can certainly disagree. If I had to put my finger into the center of the book and say, the book doesn't travel far from this verse, I would put it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Listen. Therefore, 
Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, if I get real creative, I would be tempted to, to preach the entire letter of 1 Peter out of that verse because I think you probably could do it. I'm not in the mood to be quite that creative. I probably would just go verse by verse. It's a little easier. But that's what you're going to encounter. And some of us really, really need what this book is saying because we're struggling with these ideas. We are suffering, and, and we have not noticed that we are suffering according to God's will. He's in this. This is purposeful suffering. And that our response to suffering is to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good. Right, some great insights on how to live my life while I'm suffering. So let's stand up together and close in prayer. Lord, I know many of us have read 1 Peter numerous times. But Lord, I, I pray that you'd give us a fresh sense of anticipation. Lord, what we have in this letter has been inspired by you. You waited until just the right moment to write a letter to just the right people so that you could say just the right things through a man who you roasted just the right way so that the flavoring of his life would take him into the categories that you wanted to speak about. And then you preserve this letter so that for ages to come in the church, we might be affected by it. So Lord, as though this is a gift wrapped with the most expensive of wrappings, we anticipate opening it, Lord. We anticipate reading it carefully to mine out all that you have placed in it for us, to affect us, to preserve us and strengthen us in suffering, to give us reason to continue in strength, to know what to do next when the difficulty and pain of suffering seems to be all we're in touch with. Yet you call to us, continue to entrust yourself to me, a faithful creator, and continue to do good. Lord, thank you for this gift, this book. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless.